Okay, hello, welcome here to the Agile Leader Podcast. It's been a few weeks since I've done one of these. There's been a lot of stuff happening out there in the world, and many of you will know about this uh, thing called COVID-19. Um, in some ways, it's, it's a bit of a scary thing for us all to think about, but in some ways, it's actually something that can give us an opportunity uh, rather than being just a threat. So look, um, I, I've got a special guest with me today that I'm really looking forward to chatting with because we, we've been working together for some time on Change Project. So I'd like, like to introduce you to a good friend of mine and colleague, John Wilson. And uh, John is uh, an expert on corporate change, and he's been in the business for nigh on 30 years. And he's got some real valuable tips to talk through today, especially now uh, with this uh, COVID-19. And this is a quite a big opportunity for, for people to make change happen. So hi, John. How are you doing today? Yeah, I'm very well. Thanks very much, Mark. Yeah, keen to uh, share. Good. Oh, excellent. Well, look, I mean, uh, John, we, we've worked in the past on uh, things together and we've had some awesome conversations on change and change management. And, uh, and I think quite often we, we've, we've come to the conclusion that a lot of this stuff that we talk about is just common sense. But yet maybe that uh, common sense isn't so common. So I'm just wondering if uh, yeah, there's, there's some things which I know that you're uh, in the process of writing a book at the moment, aren't you? Yes, I am. Yeah. I think just to pick up on your point about the COVID-19, I think it is an opportunity in the same way that we're finding time at home to fix things that we perhaps wouldn't have had a chance to do. But similarly, corporates have an opportunity, organisations really around the world have an opportunity to tackle some of the things that maybe they haven't had a chance to tackle historically. And one of those is how to fix change, the change that they embark on consistently year on year but which historically too often still fails because it falls short of targets so what i wanted to do today was share my thoughts and based on my as you say nearly 30 years experience of why i think that happens what i've seen and what i've been able to do to tackle it that's what we'll concentrate on today also so so what you're really saying to me john is is that uh change doesn't work so well in organizations out there no it no um, and wherever <laughs> i've been uh, it's the same story i haven't been anywhere let's say there were uh the the board and the uh, the business areas have all been jumping for joy at um how they're able to shape and deliver change almost everywhere sees change still as a problem in that something in relation to its cost time it takes to deliver what actually gets delivered at the end of it and what benefit is realized as a result of the delivery some or all of those too often are compromised by what they see as a failure in the system to get things done and most of the last 20, 30 years, organisations have taken measures to try to address that. But what I've found is that most of what they're doing is tackling the symptoms of failure rather than the underlying cause. And that's been particularly apparent perhaps in the last 10 years in what I've been doing. The remedies usually can be anything from introducing agile, restructuring, hiring consultancies, introducing more processes and procedures, frameworks, administration, meetings, and so on and so forth. The one thing that everybody, everywhere, certainly in my experience, 
has recognised as an as, is an issue is that they are trying to do too much at the same time. But what they've not recognised is that this actually is leading them to what the fundamental problem is, and that by not tackling that, all of the other remedies they deploy won't have the effect they're hoping that they will, which is why, despite all of that, they still find themselves too often falling short on times, outcomes, costs, and so on. The difficulty in tackling the we're doing too much is that everything is is urgent. There are too many priority ones. And the the reason usually for that is... uh, it's perpetuated so they haven't been able to do things as well as they wanted to do in the first place so there are some leftovers as a result and there's obviously new stuff to do and leadership certainly in my experience has felt that it's something they'll have to live with in that they they the, the workload is as it is but what i've been able to do uh, certainly in recent years is show them how to tackle that particular problem. And one way I've been able to help them understand it is by applying some basic business management principles to the change area. For example, demand and supply. So I readily recognise that if you don't have a balance of demand and supply in your business operation, you run the risk compromising the quality of your offering to your customers and indeed other stakeholders. The same principle applies in change. If you try to do too much, you compromise the quality of the output there too. And the trick, therefore, is to understand where your constraints lie and therefore how you can balance demand and supply. The psychological leap, if you like, is that it means that if you recognise that you can't do everything at once and you really need to, how can you take that leap of faith, feeling safe that, If you are to defer things, that you will get them. Because at the moment, the environment is such that any deferred start is almost certainly an even longer delay to its arrival. Uh, Leaders are too nervous, understandably so, in agreeing to delay. That's an interesting point there, because for me, as I see it, is is that this whole COVID-19 now, as, as it's out there at the minute, how many change programs or change initiatives do you think have now been put on hold as a result of this a rhetorical question really yeah yeah i think um certainly on the basis of what i've heard an awful lot because as historically has been the case if you go back to the financial crisis in 2008 and 2009 one of the casualties in corporate activity was change because Change was seen more of a, an extracurricular discretionary activity and investment beyond the running of the business. And therefore, to reduce cost and indeed the size of the workforce, change was the casualty. So reduced to the bare minimum. Favourite conversations, that, isn't it? Run the business, change the business. Yeah, absolutely. Because actually change is part and parcel of running a business. There's no separation of those two. Change is continuous. Yes. And it helps an organisation, I think, if they think of change as an integral part of their operation rather than something they do separately to the operation as and when they need to. 
Yeah, because quite often it gets outsourced, doesn't it? I mean, I know that in many organisations I've worked in, IT tends to be the place now where change is done. Yeah, and I've even heard that phrase used by um, leaders in organisations. Says, "Yes, well, we're not running change in my department. I've outsourced that to the change department and IT." Well, <laughs> would you, as a leader, admit to the world at large, not least your boss, that you've outsourced responsibility for the PNL in the business line that you've been hired to run? Managing your PNL on the basis of where you need to be tomorrow as much as you are about what you're doing today changes means by which you get to to tomorrow Mm. you can't stand still as a business if you do you'll die therefore you need to invest change is the representation of that investment therefore you need to invest in the things that will get you to where you need to get to but you've got to accept that your ambitions just like in any other aspect of business operation have to be tailored according to what you're capable of and have the capacity to cope with and in that sense you've got to be choosy about what you invest your time and your resources in and therefore it's got to be the most valuable in relation to where you're headed change in that respect is as i described is the glue that holds together the organizational purpose its strategy the pattern of events that takes it to its purpose and meet its objectives and and the operations that are running they're all part and parcel of the same organism, if you like, and, and change is the means by which you can hold those things together. So you can invest where you need to and not where you don't. And if you've only got so much you can cope with, then it makes sense to invest wisely. Mm. So, so that's, that's interesting. You, you mentioned the word capacity there. Mm. Yeah, and yeah, so, so I'm, I'm wondering, is it possible to, to measure a business's capacity to change? Yes, and to some extent, most organisations do this already, but usually they restrict their constraints to how much budget have they got for next year and how many PMs, BAs, testers and all the usual change team people do they need to engage in order to deliver stuff and is there a limit on what they can cope with. So there's a recognition that there are some constraints in that respect, but that's not enough because... If you go back to the, well, balancing demands and supply, you've got to understand in the chain of events where your pinch points are because those will tell you the extent to which you can get things through. Pinch points in change quite often are in specialist areas, either in lines of business or in specialist professions like actuarial staff or scientists or whatever, where, where there is a, a premium, if you like, on the availability that particular skill and knowledge set. If you understand where those pinch points are in your organisation and they will be the people that historically you've always go to when an area of the business is changing or it's facing a crisis or some, some, something that where's the, where's the knowledge base? Where, who are the guys you go to to get things done? You'll find that there are a handful of them in each area. And they are the guys that will inevitably get called on to become engaged in any project and program activity. If you recognise what's the capacity within those types of resource, then you begin to complete the picture on what your supply side constraints are. And there are other pinch points, like the technical estate. And a classic example of that is testing environments. So if you're manufacturing a load of software in the course of a year and everything goes through a testing regime, ultimately ends up in a model office, if you like, before it goes live. Or antibiotics, maybe. Yeah, absolutely. It's 
Yeah, it's it's a bit like um, uh, runways at an airport. If you've only got two runways, mm. don't try and land, you know, twenty five aircraft at the same time. Mm. One thing's going to happen there. You've got to respect the capacity that the runways um, allow you. So, I, I usually summarise it in terms of the, the specialists, the technical estate, and to some extent the physical estate as well. Because, for example, if you're rolling out a load of things that need some training regime at the end of it to take people through. If you've only got one training room, then, well, recognise you've only got one training room, so don't, don't allow four programmes to try to walk up and use it at the same time. There is a recognition, but I don't think it's wide enough to incorporate where the real pinch points in an organisation are. Once they do that, then absolutely you can measure reasonably well the capacity that an organisation has for getting things through on a concurrent basis. Okay, because that sounds interesting because for me, I know when I've gone into organisations and I've been asked to uh, sit in and just observe how agile organisations tend to be, and that's that's always quite an interesting task in itself. One of my enduring observations is is that you're, you're doing way too much. Oftentimes, it's not very useful just to turn around and tell the leaders, do, do less, <laughs> because you know, that, that's, that's usually not an answer. Whereas actually what I'm hearing you saying is, well, look, rather than you know, come at it from a position of look, do less, it's actually come at it an answer from, from knowing, well, you know what, well, what is the capacity of your, I mean, I'll call them spots, the single points of dependency that live in the organization. How much can you push through these points at any one particular point in time yeah yeah absolutely and uh how i've brought this to bear is that um it's just just to switch almost reverse the current thinking as it's been when i've entered somewhere start off with oh well we're going to spend 100 million next year so what can we get for 100 million and that'll be it never mind the cost for the moment the primary concern must be what should you really be investing your and as far as your future is concerned, what should you really be investing in? And what do you require in order to get that stuff done? And if you start, as I mentioned before, with a zero-based approach to this, so you start with nothing on the list, rather than, well, we'll start with a long list of 200 and try and pare it down to a 50, you'll never get that done. Mm. You'll always have some label attached to something that means actually it still stays on the list. But if you start with zero, you have to argue onto the list it makes it easier to control it and get it to a level where you can cope. Once you've been through that, you can pull together semblance of a, a baseline. But even then, you have to work out, well, do these things work together? Can, does this jigsaw fit? Because it might be that some of your stuff is mutually exclusive because of the nature of it, because of what it demands of your organisation in order to get it done. And you've got to understand, therefore, where you can only ever really make a compromise. If you try to do both of them at the same time, you probably make both of them fail. So recognise that. So it's about a bit like pulling a jigsaw puzzle together. But when you've got what you believe is an optimum investment vehicle, it's the best you can get. It all fits together. It takes you to where you need to get to, or certainly in that direction. And you know that you can cope with it, both in terms of capacity and in capability, at that point, you can ask yourself, how much does it cost? And on that, at that point, decide whether that cost is palatable 
given that you know by virtue of arguing these things onto the jigsaw puzzle what the value that you are going to get from these things will be. So it might be that you were minded at the outset to cap expenditure at, let's say, 50 million. And in the traditional approach, you'd have filled up your shopping list to 50 million and then off you go, not worrying about whether things are going to crash into each other nor whether you're going to you know, breach pinch points in some areas, but you've got your shopping list, it adds up to 50 million. What you might find in this approach is that you get everything that you really need and when you fit it all together, it all works. It only costs you 25 well, great. It means that you haven't inadvertently tied up £25 million worth of cost that you won't be able to use. Because what you've just seen is that it's only going to be physically possible to get £25 million quid's worth spent in that year. Conversely, you might find that actually when you add all of that together, it's £75. Well, that's way more than we were going to spend. So you have a choice then. You can either cut your cloth accordingly, but at least when you do it, you know that you are living within the constraints that you've set. Or you can say, well, actually, we know that we can cope with 75 million quid's worth and it will bring us these returns. So let's go ahead with it. Even though originally you said we're only going to spend 50, we can see that all of the things we think we need to do, they cost us 75 million, but we know we can get them done. So we know that we're reasonably safe and they bring us a prize of, let's say for argument's sake, um, a 200% return. Whereas if we want to stick to our original 50, by all means, we can do that. We'll scale down. We know we're not compromising on capability and capacity, but we will be scaling down the return on that investment. So just bear that in mind. But at least you're making informed decisions without compromising the outcome. You are safe at that point because you've already worked out what the danger, where the boundary is for the danger area, the capacity and the capability to get stuff done in the first place. So if you tackle the planning on that basis, then you've, in in effect, got a portfolio to invest in that starts off on a safe basis. The trick then, of course, is to keep it safe um, on a rolling basis. See, see, I I like that way of thinking about things because it brings a more agile way of thinking to the leaders because quite often in organisations, and I know that leaders have got a really difficult job to do out there. They're trying to get as much done for as little as possible. But but quite often, once we start to take the lid off things and we discover that our estimates of, of things that we thought we might get for 25 million actually turn out to be 50 million, now we can make a decision not based on the reality rather than a decision based on fantasy, you know, the thing that we thought it was in our heads before, and then we still drive the organisation to deliver it for 25 million when actually there's no in no reality is this based on it so in which case we're on to hiding for nothing and then usually quite often these things get left over because yeah we're not able to deliver them that's right so in effect you set the thing up to fail yes absolutely and as and as a result you're quite right stuff then gets left over and of course then that's it's a bit might be a bit of a negative um not intended to be but in, in a sense it contaminates the stuff that you're supposed to be doing next yeah. Because you've got to take away something from getting that done to cope with the leftover from what was done previously. Well, it ends so, up being a zero-sum game, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. And what you end up with is you are playing catch-up. Yes. So it's patching and fixing what you should have already done instead of spending that valuable resource in getting things to take you further forward towards what you're aiming to do as an organisation. 
the final bit of this is, well, yeah, but that still means I have to defer some things because you're telling me I can't do everything. How do we agree what to defer? Well, you need to do that as a collective at, at the highest level because then you can readily manage expectations about the impact of not doing some of the things today that you thought you were going to do. However, by trying to do too much, you are already inadvertently saying you're not going to get things done when you believe they're going to get done anyway because you put them all at risk mm. because you are breaching capacity. Ironically, if you allow things to get a, a fair hearing and give people a chance to deliver them safely, you will get them done more likely when they say. So if you defer something under the current circumstances, where it's all hell breaks loose and try and get as much off the ground as quickly as possible so we can get it done, if you are more likely, almost certainly, going to wait beyond the date that you believe at the outset you're going to get it. Whereas if you are able to predict when you're going to get it and you can manage expectations and your operation accordingly, then by doing the, by respecting constraints and deferring things, you will more likely get your stuff when it's due because you've given it a chance to be delivered successfully. So it is true to say that in this instance, less is more. Leaders will get more from their organisation than um, by doing less at the same time. And if they think that that's not true, then try doing more, as they have been doing, and you'll find that you get less. Well, see, this, again, raises a really, really interesting point, and I'm mindful of our time as well here, John, because I think there's so much more we can talk about here, and maybe there's another few of these conversations to come if we're going to do these in a in a really agile fashion, because you know, there's, there's some interesting points here. Because look, as I said earlier, this idea that now COVID-19 has come up, how many of the, uh, the change initiatives that were in flight are, are now maybe redundant or no longer necessary because of what's shown up or because the time at which they're going to be deployed, there's no longer any need to do it. Because in, in my space of, of, of dealing with organizations, you know, quite often there's this thing called the requirements half-life. You know, the, the yeah. idea that um, if you don't deliver this in the next six months, just don't even bother because yeah. you know, it, it's just not worth it. No, and that's why I think that um, I'm, not, I'm not trying to treat the situation that we're in lightly, but mm. certainly not, quite the opposite. It's, a, you know, we're in serious times. But from a business point of view, I think if this is a fantastic opportunity because of the hiatus to rethink what you are spending your organization's resources on investing in the future. Mm. There is an opportunity for a correction, a spring clean, if you like. Spring clean, yeah. Well, in that you can get rid of some initiatives that maybe, in all honesty, you should have got rid of a year or two or three ago, because I'm sure there, there are not many organizations that don't have a legacy change portfolio, and there's things that are hanging around that have been on there for two, three years, particularly big initiatives that were supposed to have been delivered some time ago, but are still eating up resources and funds because it's difficult to let it go. Now it's an opportunity to do that. You recognise that you can't do too much or you you put your organisation in unnecessarily high pressure and therefore high risk situation. So you recognise you've got to cut your cloth accordingly. Now is an opportunity to use some of the techniques that I've alluded to that we can perhaps go into a bit more detail in the next one of these 
mm. explain how to, how to readily make use of because it's a fairly straightforward common sense. Now is the opportunity to do the spring clean, to shift your ambitions on change to a more practical, more value-driven and more a level that's, that can be um, accomplished Yes, than, than trying to carry on bashing away a long list that you know you're never going to get done and it just keeps getting added to. And then when other things come along, like regulatory initiatives and who knows what might emerge as a result of what we learn over the next two, three, four months in the mm. regulatory regime and even in the lessons that people have learned about business whilst we've been going through this, that organisations that prepare themselves for a when we start having some sort of return to normality will be in a far better position than those that just put things on hold, keep them ticking over on the basis that as soon as this is in the clear, they'll just pick up and carry on from where they left off. This is an opportunity to have a rethink and a readjustment and to crack, in particular, the the approach to change. Some of the problems that hitherto have been either too difficult or they haven't had the time or both and therefore have had to live with. Now's the opportunity. I hope it's not too much of a dark pun to use here, but uh, I was going to say some breathing space, you know, is is what people will get, you know, as a result of this. Time Um, to think. Yes, time to think. That's a, a, a wonderful expression to use. Uh, it reminds me of a, a book by Nancy Klein. So that's exactly what uh, what every coach ought to be able to give their clients is this idea, this notion of time to think. You know? yeah. and, uh, and this just does afford people that opportunity. So if there aren't any leaders out there at the minute who are uh, feeling that sense of relief, you know, which might be a bit too soon to feel that sense of relief, um, I, I think there's opportunity here, like you say, John, just to be able to think about that. Mm. Why don't we call it a day for today and maybe we yeah. can come back and, uh, as you said, said, just maybe talk through some of these techniques on, on the next one of these uh, podcasts because, uh, yeah, for me, it's, it's, it's an interesting subject and it, and it would be useful to give people some of that time to think right now and about how they can come back to uh, normality, inverted commas, you know, in the, in the time that comes up because, as you said, um, the crisis of 2008 gave people a lot of pause for thought and uh, certainly more regulation came in as a result of that. So uh, so it'll be interesting to see where we go from here. Absolutely uh, right. And I think that there the definitely is an opportunity and it, you know, smart organisations will grab it. And you know, something I've bang, been banging on about for some time now, wherever I've gone, is that there's nothing rocket science about change and Nothing that in fixing how to do change is defying the laws of physics. What we can do, there's nothing, no reason why an organisation can't get this right to the extent that they can use it as a source of competitive advantage because it enables them to be more nimble. They can embrace change when they need to, in the way that they need to, in what markets they operate in, where they want to change their offering in the markets or into new markets run on a more efficient and effective basis as an organisation, all the usual things that they aspire to do, change is a means by which they can get there. So if they can do that really well, better than the competition, they're going to get there faster. Mm. And what what better uh, set of circumstances, or maybe you shouldn't say what better, but <laughs> um, this, this is a, an unusual set of circumstances, I suppose, yeah, to, to be able to test out uh, the the agile thinking and the agile behaviours of people in organisations now. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, John, look, thank you for your time. And uh, 
um, look forward to uh, chatting again real soon about uh, about some of these techniques that uh, that you can help our listeners uh, start to adopt in their organisations as a result of this crisis that's ongoing. Oh, certainly. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you, John. Thanks.